0: So this morning, we're continuing on our One Another series, um, looking at God's invitation to community and what it means to be a people marked by love. Um, So the scripture today is 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 11. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Mike is taller than me, but he very kindly put this back into place. How are you guys doing? Good morning. <laughs> Let's see if we can get this to capture my voice. Um, So, if we haven't met, my name is Mandy, I'm on staff here at Reality Church Boston, and today I will be continuing our sermon series on the one another verses in the New Testament. So, uh, that phrase one another appears dozens of times, especially in Paul's letters, and it serves as a reminder that the Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation. All of the things that we're called to, all the virtues that are part of following Jesus—like love, service, hospitality, patience, humility—these all require engaging in community. Actually, despite what I told Josh earlier, I think I'm just going to hold this. Is that crazy? Yeah. Okay. I <laughs> was very supportive. You guys are great encouragers, so this is already going to go really well because the topic that I'm teaching on today is encouragement. Um, But just thinking about the one and others of scripture, I find it fascinating that when Jesus departed this world, what he chose to represent him and to carry on his mission in this world was not one person or one practice, but a community. Now, some of us might prefer it if our spiritual lives were more like a marathon, like the path of transformation might be long and grueling, but you just have to run it alone and all you have to do is just make it to the end. Well, that doesn't appear to be God's plan. Christianity is not a solo act. And God appears to intend for community to be a major part of what changes us. God calls his church to be a testimony to who he is to the world. And Jesus's first disciples were this kind of ragtag group of misfits who didn't have much in common except for their conviction that Jesus was the savior of the world. But through his Holy Spirit, he transformed this community into a community that radiated such compassion and generosity and reconciliation and joy that everyone around them stopped to take notice. And so that is the kind of community that we are called to become as Christians. So as we explore these one another's of scripture, our goal is to cultivate a more vivid picture of Jesus's idea of church. The church wild and messy and beautiful community that he had in mind. And as we live in Jesus' ways, we'll discover how his version of community fosters transformation and makes the love of Jesus more tangible to others. So as I said, today the theme that I am teaching on is the call to encourage one another. So I'm just gonna stand here and encourage you all for the next 25 minutes nonstop. I am so proud of you today just for getting out of bed. You are all winners in my book. Your hair looks great today. (laughs) There's more where that came from, so just you wait. Um, In all seriousness, I was actually thinking about this this morning. As I was preparing for this sermon, I wrestled a lot with the worry that encouragement could come off as kind of a fluffy topic. Like basically we were just going to read through a series of motivational posters. You know the ones, there would be like a picture of an eagle flying and it just says like, Dare to soar, or this is this is one that I've seen more often probably than any other. It's like this poor little kitty that's like hanging onto a rope by his like little tiny claws, and it says perseverance. And I'm like, okay, that's a nice sentiment, but like someone needs to rescue that poor cat. Like, is he okay? Why is he still hanging there? So today, our goal is to try to move beyond the platitudes and the kind of surface level pep talks, and instead to try to uncover the reason that scripture has so much to say about encouragement, because it has a lot to say about encouragement. In fact, in the New Testament, encouragement is basically presented as this foundational practice for Christian community, that we would be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, that we would strengthen each other's souls, That's from Acts chapter 14. I love that phrasing. Strengthen one another's souls. Strengthen one another's souls. And that we would charge each other to walk in a manner that is worthy of God. So before we really dive into our text and the, the word today, let me just take a moment to pray for these things for us and to ask Jesus to meet us through his word. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you so much that you are a God who sees everything, and who knows everything, Lord. And so we know that when you speak a word of encouragement to us, God, that it is completely grounded in reality. It is completely grounded in truth. It is a word that we can rely upon. And Jesus, I just want to ask right now that you would speak a word of encouragement to each of us, to the unique obstacles that we're facing, to the burdens that are on our hearts, to the challenges, to the confusion, to anything that we're carrying in today that feels messy or muddled or tangled. Lord, we ask that you would speak truth to us and to help us to hold fast to who you are and what you are calling us to do and how you are calling us to engage in this world, Lord. And we also want to ask that you would make these words from from throughout your scriptures, that you would make these things true of us. That we would be a church that is mutually encouraged by one another's faith. That we would be a church who strengthens one another's souls. And that we would charge each other to walk in a manner worthy of you. Or would you be present to us this morning? And help us to really, yeah, just receive from you the word that you want to speak. So we pray all those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as Mike read earlier, our main scripture for today is from the book, or actually the letter, of 1 Thessalonians. And so to appreciate what this letter has to say about encouragement, we could use a little context on why it was written. So the author is the Apostle Paul, who was an early follower of Jesus. He was a missionary, a church planter, a preacher, and the writer of much of the New Testament. And the recipients of this letter were the Christian church in Thessalonica, which is the capital city of this Roman province of Macedonia. So we actually get the full story of Paul's journey to Thessalonica in Acts 17. So we know a lot about what was going on there. We learn that Paul and his crew of fellow missionaries are traveling throughout the city. They're sharing the good news about Jesus, how he was the son of God, and yet he suffered for us and died for our sins, and he was raised to life to bring us the gift of new life. So both Jews and Greeks are hearing this news, and both are believing in Jesus and deciding to follow him. But it doesn't take long for Paul and company to also make enemies. So some of the Jewish leaders are so jealous that they stir up a violent mob and they accuse the Christians of proclaiming a king other than Caesar, meaning Jesus, which makes these Christians dangerous in the eyes of the Roman government. And so, so much conflict arises that Paul and the others are actually forced to flee the city and to leave the brand new Thessalonian church behind. Now this is hardly anyone's ideal church planting technique, in case you're wondering. We have this newly formed community made up of people from different cultural and political and religious backgrounds, and they have very recently renounced the idols they used to worship and put their faith in Jesus. And now, immediately, they're facing persecution. And then soon after that, their leaders are kicked out of the city. So Paul is understandably worried. Will this church be okay? Will they hold fast to their faith, or will they cave and compromise under pressure from the Roman government? So since Paul is basically persona non grata in the city, he decides to send Timothy back to check on the Thessalonians. And Timothy comes back with a glowing report. Not only is the church surviving, they are thriving. They are enduring persecution bravely, even though members of their community were likely martyred. They've become known throughout the entire region as a church that is marked by joy in the face of affliction and evident love for one another. And in response to this wonderful news, Paul sits down to write them a letter. So we can already kind of anticipate, based on this context, why First Thessalonians would be a letter of encouragement. Because Paul is super encouraged by the faith of the Thessalonians, and he wants to encourage them to continue on in their faith. But Paul also takes this opportunity to address some of the concerns that were causing the church anxiety. So first of all, the Thessalonians' understanding of the afterlife was a little fuzzy and with all the persecution that was happening, they were thinking a lot about these types of questions like, what does it mean when Jesus says that he's going to return to the earth in glory? And when is that going to happen? What happens to those who have already died, even died for their faith? And how can those who remain know that they're living faithfully and that they'll be welcomed into Jesus' kingdom? So, the Thessalonian church is marked by joy, faith, and love. That's already a reputation that they have, but they're also struggling with confusion and uncertainty. So they're in need of reassurance that their suffering is not in vain. So Paul's letter meets this church in the midst of the complications of real life. And so his goal throughout this entire letter is to fortify, to kind of build up or to increase the Thessalonians' faith. And Paul does that by calling them to re anchor themselves in what's true and to remind one another of what's true. And so, this is at the heart of the call to encourage one another. Encouragement has the ability to reshape the story that we're telling ourselves about our lives, about our future, and about God Himself. So, encouragement, the Greek word used here is parakaleo, and that can basically mean to come alongside alongside someone, or to address them with words of exhortation, or comfort, or instruction. So there's this element of soothing and consoling, but there's also an element of building someone up and calling them forward. So even if we look at the English word, to encourage someone literally means to put courage into them, to kind of infuse courage into them. And this is so important, because the Christian life, if you're going all in, If you're going to commit to wholeheartedly following Jesus, it requires courage. Jesus is going to ask you to do things that you're not sure you're capable of. To give to others as if their needs are your needs. To serve and to welcome those who can't offer you anything in return. To forgive that person. To cross those uncrossable social, racial, and socioeconomic barriers. To resist temptation. To believe in supernatural evidence of God's presence and grace and to live as if sin and death don't get the final word. Jesus calls us to drop our comfortable, self-indulgent, often self-serving ways and to follow him and he calls us to pursue a transformed life not just for our own sake but for the sake of others and that requires courage. So what we learn here in 1 Thessalonians and in many of Paul's letters is that Christian community needs to be a place where our courage is renewed, where the words that we speak to one another re-anchor us in truth, where we are built up and propelled forward to keep walking in faith. So we can see Paul actually modeling this type of encouragement here in chapter five. And the text kind of gives us a sense, based on what he's saying, of the types of questions that the Thessalonians were probably asking. So for instance, how can we persevere in the face of such opposition? Well, Paul says to put on faith and love as our armor because walking in the ways of Jesus will strengthen you. The more that you follow him, the more you will experience his goodness, and the more your trust will grow and your fear will fade. How can we know what is waiting for us after death? Well, Paul says remember that Jesus has offered you eternal life as a free gift. Your hope of salvation is like a helmet that reminds you that no lasting harm can befall you, so rest in the truth that you are safe in Christ. How can we as a church live in a way that reflects our faith? Encourage one another. Rehearse what is good and true again and again as a community. Speak to each other in a way that builds up your faith, that revives your hope. Your words have the power to speak life to others, so use them to strengthen one another. So these words that Paul is saying in this chapter, they're such beautiful, life-giving words. And I just love the idea that's being put forward here of this community that proactively seeks to fill one another with courage and with hope. So it's so different from the world around us and how we often deal with the messiness and the complications of life. So in this world, we are constantly faced with very real reasons for discouragement, for feeling overwhelmed by the problems of the world, or feeling weighed down by repeated disappointment. And I've noticed that modern American culture often defaults to one of two approaches. These are the two that stood out to me as I was thinking about this. So we'll kind of treat them like two archetypes, like two kind of like characters that represent a way of being in the world. So let's call them, for the sake of this conversation, the cynic and the optimist. So the cynic is able to look at harsh realities in the face, but that's all they can see. So the cynic sees the brokenness in this world, but they think, how can things possibly get better? I've heard someone refer to cynicism as disillusioned idealism which I think is an interesting take. So really, cynicism is a defense mechanism. If you expect the future to be bleak, and for people to be horrible, perhaps you can shield yourself from disappointment and pain. But you've also shielded yourself from hope, because hope requires openness, vulnerability. Hope takes courage. So the second archetype is the optimist. and In this case, I am defining optimist in a very specific way, not trying to be down on all kinds of positivity, but I'm talking about an almost kind of aggressive optimism that deals with the hardships of life by trying to paint over them with bright rosy colors. So when I lived in Southern California, I noticed this much more, this kind of pervasive cultural tendency to refuse to talk about anything negative, almost as if avoiding the topic could make the actual negative situation just disappear. Um, There's this scene in the TV show, Ted Lasso, and they've made it into a meme, so I feel okay referencing it, but I am sorry if you haven't seen it yet. Um, But the main character, Ted, is having a conversation with a therapist, and she's inviting him to open up and to face his difficult emotions. So she puts a box of tissues in front of him, and he immediately takes it and just hurls it across the room into a trash can. So that's basically the kind of attitude that I'm referencing here, like hardships, Heavy emotions, harsh realities, just, you know, no thank you. Um, But those two perspectives, and in particular, blind optimism, doesn't work. We may think we've created a sunny, sadness-free world for ourselves, but what we've actually created is an inner volcano, a lifetime of pressure from stuffing our pain down until we finally can't take it anymore and all the feelings just erupt. But I think that the Bible invites us to a third way that actually combines the strengths of the cynic and the optimist because we need the cynic's willingness to face reality as it is and we need the optimist's kind of readiness to believe that the future can be brighter than what we see right now today. So as I was reflecting on this, there was a particular Bible verse that came to mind that I think gives us a kind of concrete example of how Jesus engages hard realities and active hope at the same time. And so the verse is John 16, 33. I'll read it to you, but... This verse is actually personally significant to me. It gave me a lot of encouragement in my early days as a Christian when becoming a follower of Jesus had caused tension in my relationships, especially with my friends and my family, and at times definitely made me feel really alone. So in this passage, in the chapter, the chapter in John, Jesus knows that he's going to be arrested, and he predicts that his disciples will scatter and leave him alone. But he will not truly be alone, because the Father will still be with him. And so Jesus says that he's telling his disciples all these things so that in him they will have peace. And then he says this, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So this is a simple, but a powerful statement. And there are three things that Jesus does here that I want us to notice. So first, he acknowledges reality. Second, he pivots towards hope. And third, he anchors us in a greater truth. So Jesus first acknowledges reality. So the approach of blind optimism, that will ultimately come up short because we can't effectively deal with pain by just dressing it up with bright, shiny, Lisa Frank stickers and hoping for the best. Encouragement is shallow if it attempts to erase what is true. And it is true, as Jesus says, that in this world, you will have trouble. And what I appreciate is that as we walk with Jesus and as we learn from his teachings, we'll notice that he never asks us to pretend. He never tells us to act like things are not what they are. Instead, he gives us real reasons for courage and a solid foundation for hope. So this is the second thing that happens. Jesus pivots towards hope. He doesn't dismiss the difficulties, but he then shifts our attention with these anchoring words. But take heart. And it's a call to courage. It's a challenge to cynicism and despair. He's basically saying, in this world, you will have trouble. That's true. But that's not the end of the story. There is more to come. There is reason for hope. There's a way to move forward with courage. So Jesus ends this exhortation by saying, I have overcome the world. What a crazy thing to say. I have overcome the world. And only Jesus can say that. In other words, this world that is full of trouble doesn't get the final say, the pain you experience, the obstacles you face, the new reasons for anxiety that just seem to pop up every day. Jesus has overcome them all. Jesus has done battle against fear, discouragement, despair, and hopelessness, and he has won. Through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, he overcame sin and death. He broke their power. And he is even now ushering our world towards healing. He is making every broken thing new, and that includes you and me. So, our hope is in the fact that even though we will have trouble in this world, even though that is true, there is another more ultimate truth. There is a truth that reigns supreme above our temporary troubles so that as followers of Jesus, our troubles don't get to define our lives. Through Jesus, we find reason for courage. And as we follow him, as he teaches us to see things through his perspective, we will experience the renewal that he is bringing about more and more. So take heart. Jesus has already overcome. And so this is the third way of seeking true encouragement to face life with courageous hope. And it's worth noting that a powerful encouragement does not necessarily have to be long and intricate. It can be straightforward and simple. And I remember a while ago, I was having a conversation with a friend who is a great encourager. And as I had shared with her about this recurring theme in my life, basically feeling like God was inviting me to live with more courage. And there have been many situations where I felt like the Holy Spirit has prompted me to kind of pause look at my situation, and to notice what path my fear is telling me to take versus what path my faith may be telling me to take. And so at these crossroads, I'm basically facing this call to ignore the voice of fear and to choose to be brave, to make decisions based on my values, based on how Jesus instructs me to see the world, and to trust that as I walk in faith, even if my legs feel shaky, God walks with me. So I was with my friend and I was telling her about one of these crossroad moments and I was facing a decision and I wanted to choose the brave thing but I was also afraid of the consequences because I knew that the brave choice was also the harder choice as it often is and I had you know this small inner voice exhorting me to be brave but I also had this louder internal voice that was like or you could give up and just hide under your bed covers eat some Ben and Jerry's and maybe your problems will go away with time so that was clearly not the voice of wisdom, and I knew that, but I just needed a friend to speak out loud against the voice of fear, to just affirm the hard decision, and to give me the strength I needed to move forward. And so that's exactly what she did. And later on, I was texting her kind of like updates and new prayer, re- prayer requests, and she sent me a text that just said this. You are so brave and so loved. And it was such a simple statement, but I still think about those words all the time because that was exactly what I needed to hear. You are so brave, you are so loved. When we are battling against discouragement, when we have so many thoughts swirling around in our brains that it's hard to know what to listen to, sometimes we just need someone to speak clear and simple truths over us just to quiet all the noise. We need someone to remind us of what's true because often the truth that we need to find strength and comfort and peace is right in front of us and we've just forgotten it. So maybe we need to be reminded of the times that we've already been brave. And I don't know your story, but I know that in this world, each one of us faces troubles, loss, betrayal, injustice, neglect, very real reasons for anxiety. And yet we're here against all odds we have chosen to follow Jesus. We have chosen to gather here in the hope that he will meet us and remind us that he is near. We have chosen to keep living by faith, to let go of our old ways and to embrace the new life that Jesus offers us. And we don't have to worry about tomorrow because God is able to supply new courage for whatever you may face. So remember how Jesus has met you when you needed fresh strength. Remember that he has already overcome. You can choose hope. You can be, and you are, brave, and you are loved. Maybe that's the reminder that you need today, that Jesus does not give or withhold love from us based on what we do or what we bring to the table. He responds to us based on who he is, and he is love incarnate. He has given his life for us. And God's word says that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You are so, so loved. So that day those words were for me, but today they're also for you. And that's the beauty of encouragement. We are simply sharing the same truths with one another over and over until what's true about God and what's true about us starts to recolor our vision and these kind of ultimate reigning truths become a part of how we automatically, intrinsically see things. So how can we grow? In our ability to act as encouragers. Well first, I, I think that just naming this as a value is an important step. Realizing that words do have power, they can tear us down, but they also have the power to build us up and to give us life. And this is especially true when we ask God to guide our words. So throughout the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is often referred to as parakletos, which comes from the same root word as the word we talked about earlier, parakaleo, which means to encourage. So the Holy Spirit, is an encourager, a comforter, an intercessor. And he empowers us to do the same work and to fill God's people with courage and hope. And we can learn to listen for his leading and how to strengthen and how to comfort others. And we can look to scripture, which is just overflowing with words of encouragement that we can take to heart and let's shape the way that we think and the way that we speak. So this week, as I was um, reflecting, I was looking back at times on my life where I received encouragement just when I needed it. At times when God maybe delivered a timely word or the comforting presence of a friend and it just revived my hope, revived my courage. And I was kind of just starting to look for patterns, like what kinds of reminders helped to shift my perspective when I was at a low point. So I noticed three things, and I feel like I'm always picking three. It's not intentional, I promise. Like, I just can't help it. Maybe it's a holy number. I don't know. But there are three core truths that stood out to me from those moments of encouragement. Um, And so the three things are this. First, that God is with me. God is with me. Second, that God is in control. And third, that God is good. So these are three very simple but essential truths. God is with us. God is with you. God chose to send his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to never be apart from us. There are so many dark and heavy moments in my memory where the one thing that made the biggest difference was just experiencing God's presence anew, just being reminded that he is with me. And I'm constantly surprised by what I can survive and what Jesus followers in general can survive just by knowing that God is with us that he walks the, the long hard roads alongside us. So when everything is just like swirling like a storm around you, God is your anchor, your safety, your security, God is with you. And God is in control. God's sovereignty, his, his supreme power and authority is something that I return to all the time, especially when I feel helpless in the face of circumstances that I can't change. And in times when my vision has kind of been clouded by fear or pain, there's this one phrase that often comes to mind for me, and it's that God is not done working yet. Because sometimes we make assessments of our situation based only on what we can see here and now, but God is able to move and shift things in ways that we cannot see and that don't make sense to us. So any time we think we've arrived at the end of the road, that there's no hope or no way forward, we need to remember that God has all the time and resources in the universe at his disposal, and He he's not done working yet. God is in control, and God is good. God is in favor of our flourishing, and that can be so hard to remember when we are still waiting to see how he can possibly bring good out of a hard situation. I remember there was a time when I was really struggling with disappointment to the point where I was having trouble even praying. I knew that I needed to. I knew that I needed to sit down and talk to God and just bring to him all the things that were on my heart, but I just felt so much internal resistance that it was difficult for a while. Finally, I ended up just sitting down and just telling God what's on my mind, which is that it just didn't feel like he cared about me or about what I wanted. And in response, this reply came so clearly. It's so interesting, I don't know if this has happened to you, this like moment where you're like, there's this like sudden burst of like very clear wisdom and you're like, that's not from me, I don't know who it's from, maybe it's from the Holy Spirit. But basically the reply was this. I know it feels to you right now, like I'm the, like I'm the antagonist in this story, but I'm not. I'm with you, and I'm for you, and that never changes. And the realization that I had in that moment was that I was seeing things upside down. I had translated not getting what I wanted to meaning that God didn't care. Instead of believing that God heard my prayers and was answering them according to his wisdom and his patience, which far exceeds mine. So with time, we often begin to see that God's ways were better than our ways and that he truly does work all things together for good for those who love him, because God is good. God is with you. God is in control. God is good. So to end our time today in the Word, I want to invite you all to join me in an exercise. It's very brief. um, And then we'll transition after that to a time of worship through song and through prayer as usual. But right now, I'm going to ask you to just engage your imagination for a moment. So if it's helpful for you, you can close your eyes to eliminate distraction, whatever you think would be useful. So we're just gonna take a moment and bring to mind a situation in your life where you need encouragement. Whatever is coming to mind first, a situation in life where you need encouragement. Maybe it's a difficult situation at work. Maybe it's that you're out of work, you're looking for a job, you have been for some time. Maybe it's a challenging relationship or a heavy weight in the life of someone you love that you can't lift for them. Maybe it's an unfulfilled desire. Maybe it's a recurring experience of anxiety or shame in your life. So whatever is coming to mind right now, imagine it as if it's literally a wall in front of you, a literal obstacle in your path. Now I'm going to speak these same words that we've been talking about and just imagine speaking these words to that obstacle, to that wall, and just watching it crumble away word by word, moment by moment, truth by truth. God is with me. God is with me. He tells us his very name is Emmanuel, God with us. Even when I can't see him, even when I can't understand how he is working, God is here. God is in control. God has not ignored my struggles. God has heard my prayers, and he is not done working yet. God has not reached the end of his plans or his resources, and I have yet to see how faithful he can be. God is in control, and God is good. God is my help and my encouragement when I'm in need. He is a God of redemption and he can and will work all things for good. He is for me and not against me. God is good. Amen. Let me pray for us now.